I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. I want to welcome everybody to our webinar this afternoon. Thank you all for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. And um, those of you who may not know, Ashbrook is an independent educational center located at Ashland University here in North Central Ohio. And we run programs in American history and government for students, teachers, and citizens both here on the campus of Ashland University, but also around the country. And uh, this webinar today is really part of our educational mission, which is to help educate our fellow Americans, whether those are students, teachers, or citizens, in the history and founding principles of our country. And we also hope in the habits of reflection and choice, as the Federalist Number One puts it, uh, that we think are necessary to perpetuate our republic. So thank you for joining us today for this webinar that is part of that educational mission. And we really believe at Ashbrook, as I always say, that education is not about just information and definitely not about indoctrination, but about discovering the truth for yourself. We really root all of our programs in Aristotle's old maxim that all human beings by nature desire to know. And then we add, but they don't wanna to be told. They wanna to discover <laughs> it for themselves. And we found that the best way to discover for yourself is through conversation. So we wanna have a conversation today um, about a very important topic for contemporary American society, politics, culture, and a very important figure in American history. And to join us for that conversation today on Susan B. Anthony and her insights into contemporary feminist movement and what it means for America today. Joining me today for that conversation is Dr. Natalie Taylor. Uh, Professor Taylor is the chair of the Department of Government at Skidmore College in New York State. She received her bachelor's degree from Kenyon College right here in the great old state of Ohio <laughs> and then went on to get her master's and PhD from Fordham University in New York City. Uh, Professor Taylor teaches a wide range of interesting courses at Skidmore. She teaches uh, especially in political thought, in feminist political thought, and in American politics. And uh, she also happens to teach for us and does a wonderful job teaching for us in Ashbrook's Master of Arts in American History and Government program. I was looking at some of the courses you've taught, Natalie, uh, American Revolution, um, the Reform Tradition, Ratification Debates, <laughs> but also um, a really interesting course entitled The Adams Family. Yeah. 
of my one of my favorites. <laughs> so um, she her her range of knowledge extends across <laughs> American history and politics from the American founding to contemporary times. Mm-hmm. She's also a published author, has written articles and book chapters on American political thought, uh, contemporary feminist thought, and also written a really wonderful book on the political thought of Mary Wollstonecraft, mm-hmm. the British um, thinker who was one of, considered one of the pioneers of feminist political thought in the Western tradition. Mm-hmm. Natalie, so thanks so much for taking the time to join us today to talk about Susan B. Anthony. Uh, well, thank you for having me. I'm I'm just absolutely delighted to be here. I um, consider my affiliation with the Ashbrook Center and um, the MAG program, and more recently with the Teaching American History program, one of the sort of proudest um, elements of, of my career. So I'm, I'm really very grateful to always be invited to, to talk with you. Yeah, well, thank you so much. And for those of you who are joining us, if you want to get in on the conversation, uh, use the Q&A function, please, to ask questions. We always try to get to as many of those questions as we can. I, I, if we can't get to them all, I apologize in advance, but we will try. Uh, I know there'll be a number of questions today. Um, Natalie, to start us off, Susan B. Anthony. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of us probably know she's on a coin. Yep. We've probably heard of her, mm-hmm. but a lot of us, I think, don't know a lot about this figure in, who turns out to be one of the most important figures in American history, probably uh, of the 19th and 20th century. Tell us a little bit about Susan B. Anthony, who she was, and um, and then we'll perhaps get into a little bit later her effect on the modern feminist movement and whether they are inheritors of her or or not inheritors of her. But just start us off with who's Susan B. Anthony? So Susan B. Anthony um, was born in February 15th, 1820, and then she died March 13th um, in 1906. So her lifespan, as you mentioned, really does uh, encompass most of the 19th century. She's born to a Quaker family, which um, was conservative in in many ways. Uh, I always make students a little nervous when I tell them that Quakers did not believe in dancing and drinking alcohol, but they were um, less conservative in other important ways that would have profound effects on her uh, public life. They encouraged their daughters to be educated alongside with their sons. And they also allowed for women to speak publicly. And both of those things, I think, are, are going to be central to her ability to, to step into her public role. She did so on behalf of the temperance movement. So part of the 19th century reform tradition was an effort to limit the production and sale of alcohol. And um, Anthony recognized the way the pernicious effects that the drunkenness had on both the financial, sometimes the physical consequences for women. And so she sought to bring an end to that. And it, it wasn't long that she sort of realized if they really was going to be change, um, that women had to have the vote. They had to be able to pressure their lawmakers into making those changes. So that's how she um, begins her public career, how she uh, dips her toe in women's rights. And um, this is all prior to the Civil War. 
and she ended up devoting her long life to it. As I mentioned, she died in 1906. Her friend and uh, lifelong friend, I should say, and and uh, colleague Elizabeth Cady Stanton said that um, Susan B. Anthony, like John Quincy Adams, so here's the connection you're looking for, Jeff, would die, um, you know, at the on the on the podium and she practically did she caught pneumonia on her way back from a women's rights convention and died at her home in rochester so that's, when that's fascinating to me you're just saying that uh, when we think of susan b anthony we do think of the uh, her as a suffragette right fighting yeah. for the right of women to vote but you're saying originally right. that grows out of her um desire to spread the temperance movement that's right yeah and she so you know, we'll take a look at that document today and um, her, her I, what I believe is her strongest, most compelling argument for suffrage um, and her most idealistic argument for um, suffrage. But uh, her initial um, reasons for being drawn to the suffrage movement are really about uh, a kind of pragmatic, uh, you know, utilitarian way to end temperance. Okay. She was also an abolitionist. To as I was going to ask about that. So, yeah. so here's this woman before the Civil War arguing mm -hmm. for the restriction or abolition of the use mm -hmm. of alcohol because mm -hmm. of bad effects. But also, is she involved? You said she's an abolitionist. Is she involved mm -hmm. in other reform movements like the effort to get rid of slavery? And how do those things kind of mix together before we get to the Civil War? Yeah, so um, there was a lot of crossover, I would say, um, between those in the temperance movement and in the abolitionist movement, uh, a kind of general spirit of reform, um, particularly in upstate New York, where she she was from in the sort of central uh, upstate New York area. And so uh, it made for, I mean, I can rattle off the list of little towns out there that, um, you know, sound very charming and quaint, but you couldn't hardly believe that there would be the kind of, you know, intellectual and activist power there. Um, but there was, so it made for a very vibrant community. I've already mentioned Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Frederick Douglass was on hand, and a, a host of other uh, reformers who were, you know, working together to bring about change. So the civil <clears throat> the Civil War comes. Is mm -hmm. is um, Susan B. Anthony active? in the women's suffrage movement before the Civil War? Yeah, so she um, she does sort of, she does link up with other women's rights advocates and the, uh, the first call or explicit call for women's suffrage came in 1848 in the Declaration of Sentiments, which was um, part of the, the document that came out of the Seneca Falls Convention. Now, Anthony wasn't there, but she soon as I mentioned, linked up with some of those um, reformers, and uh, that was considered pretty radical. There were a lot of people who had signed their name to that document, and then they said, oh, no, no, that's a bridge too far. I can't do that. Um, they were, so there were sort of more, had greater success, let me put it that way, in advocating for property rights for example, and had made some headway prior to the Civil War in the state of New York. Um, but the Civil War came along and it would it just didn't seem appropriate to advocate for one's own rights when this, the nation was in this crisis. 
So what happens to uh, Susan B. Anthony and the women's suffrage, suffrage mm-hmm. movement after the Civil War? It seems like with the Civil War comes and emancipation, the abolition of slavery, mm-hmm. the extension of the right to vote in the 15th Amendment to all people regardless of color, it seems like this would accelerate the trend toward women's right to vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it 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 didn't. <laughs> It, it kind of stalled it, um, you know, and, and I, I guess I should say that it I am, a, you know, I've been steeped in Susan B. Anthony for a few years now. And so I, I do have her perspective and others should uh, feel free to um, push back a little bit. But um, so that was, it's, it's sort of interesting in the years following the Civil War, there had been kind of a reverse on prior to the Civil War, women like Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucy Stone, uh, middle-class, educated women, white women, sort of gave credibility to the abolitionist movement, right? The abolitionists um, were, you know, considered very radical, some in in many cases. uh, And so this kind of brought them into the kind of mainstream arguments. In the years following the Civil War, as you said, as as Reconstruction is taking place and the nation is thinking about how to fold in the uh, in the formerly enslaved people, that becomes pressing and central in a way that women's rights were no, no longer were, and their demand, their continued demand for uh, rights, including suffrage. Uh, and, and and sort of advocating for those alongside of the freed um, people uh, made them to seem to be a little bit out of step with mainstream politics. And so, as you mentioned, uh, the Reconstruction Amendments are ratified. The 14th Amendment introduces the word male into the Constitution. Uh, it's mentioned, the, it's, the word is used three times um, each time in relationship to citizenship. And um, so then it becomes necessary to um, pass the 15th Amendment. And Anthony was hopeful that the 15th Amendment could undo the damage that the 14th Amendment d- did. Um, the Section 1 of the 15th Amendment reads, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So Anthony was thinking, wouldn't it be just so easy to slip the word sex in there? And uh, she had really pushed for that, um, but it wasn't to be that that amendment was ratified without that. little tiny word and as a consequence she felt very daunted that a new amendment would have to uh, be ratified in in order to um, get the right to vote. Well that's fascinating to me because I I, I don't think I or many of our listeners probably Mm -hmm. knew that the Constitution never says that only men can vote but it it, it, uh, the original Constitution does not but then mm-hmm. in the 14th Amendment in 1868, much later, yeah. it implies that that's so. And mm-hmm. so really, after the Civil War, you're saying there's a setback for yeah. Susan Anthony yeah, and, yeah. and the women's suffrage movement. Yeah. So what happens, uh, because you, this document that you and I talked about mm-hmm. in our wonderful podcast episode, yeah, on that was Anthony, fun. and that you've, you've directed our attention to, mm-hmm. has a really provocative title. And this yeah. is one her, maybe one of her more famous um, speeches or letters, mm-hmm. which is, and the title, if I've got it right, is 
is it a crime for women to vote mm-hmm. or for a citizen to vote, I guess? Yeah. Okay. What? That's a, how could it be a crime for a citizen to vote? Well, we find out. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So the, what happens is, you know, after the 15th Amendment is passed and she sees that it will not include uh sex as a category by which uh, people can be prohibited from voting. She feels utterly deflated because she knows that now a new amendment will have to be introduced. And she gets the idea that perhaps uh, the women's rights advocates can establish women's right to vote based on the 15th amendment. Amendment. They will advocate that they are citizens and therefore they should be allowed to vote according to this. Um, and so the, the document that we have in front of us is her argument for including um, or protecting women's rights to vote based on the 15th Amendment. And again, this was a, a new political strategy to prevent the necessity of having to ratify a new amendment. So this document, is it a mm-hmm. crime for a citizen to vote? Um, it, it, was it a crime? Did she get arrested? Yeah, so she she comes up with the idea that, um, you know, we're citizens. It says we can vote. Let's go do it, ladies. And so um, Susan B. Anthony, along with a number of women across the United States, went to their local polling places to vote in the 1872 election. And um, she was promptly arrested after voting. Well, promptly three weeks later, she was arrested after voting. And um, she was uh, released on bail. Her her lawyer couldn't stand to leave her sitting there. And so she was released. Um, and so in that period prior to her court date, she made the round. She published several uh, pieces in newspapers. And she also made several speeches across the state arguing that she had been wrongly arrested, that in fact, women are citizens and therefore have the right to vote. Wow. And so the, the piece we have in front of us is uh, an example of one of those speeches and, and essays that she what had printed. She, what does she say in her argument about why women should have the right to vote? What does she appeal to? What kind of argument does she make? I think this document is from the early 1870s, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, it's 1873 in the spring. So she, um, I think that this um, document is so well crafted and lays out uh, uh, our first principles as Americans uh, and as a way of solving some, uh, even I'd go so far as to solving some of the theoretical problems. So in the first part of the document, I I see it as divided into two parts. Anthony offers an account of the philosophical principles on which um, the nation is founded and the ones that... um, you know, they echo the Declaration in in many ways. So, uh, for example, she um, tells us that our Republican government is based on the idea of the natural right of every individual to a voice and a vote in making the execution of the laws. And this is um, follows from the kind of social contract theory that we see in the Declaration of Independence that human beings are endowed with natural rights and they compromise those rights or um, mitigate them 
uh, in some way in order to live peacefully together in political life. But um, and, and so uh, that would be true of of women as well. Um, as she says, they don't barter away their rights. They simply pledge themselves to protect each other in the enjoyment of them, which of course is the argument of the declaration. So she's saying that if women, if, if a woman lived on an island by herself, mm -hmm. she would have control of her own person and property. And right. she would be sort of voting, deciding for herself how to govern herself. That's right. She joins society. She doesn't give that right up. No. She maintains no. that right. And that right includes the right to vote about who's going to govern you. Yeah, and so I think that she solves a, um, a, a theoretical problem that certainly Jefferson was aware of, right? If we think about the scenario you've just mentioned, that human beings have to make the conscious decision to live amongst others and make an agreement about how that's going to happen, that's very clear at the time of the Declaration the and, and the American Revolution, the ratification of the Constitution. But like all um, good, ordered, stable political societies, they are meant to outlast the generation that founds them. And so as you know, and as I mentioned, I think Jefferson was really alive to that question. How do you assure that subsequent generations of citizens are consenting to their government? And I will leave it to Kara and other Jefferson scholars to address that question. Um, but, you know, Anthony, argues that it is the right to vote that is that um, sort of renews our consent in our government by going to the polls, taking part in the, the decision making, then we are in effect consenting. And so as long as we do not have the capacity to vote, we are being governed without our consent. And of course, that echoes the no taxation without representation, which you know she explicitly deals with as well. So she it really in this speech, if what if I'm understanding what you're mm -hmm. saying, She's really looking back to the principles of the American founding, to things like the Declaration of Independence and saying, hey, the American founders believed in consent of the governed. If you were going to be governed, you had to agree to govern. Mm -hmm. How do you show your agreement, as you just said? Well, by voting. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we're, we're people, too. So we're, we're being governed. So we mm -hmm. should have to consent. We should have the right to vote. This is 1873. Yep. Is that argument successful? Not in 1873. So um, the the second part of the document, she is she tries to uh, establish that women fall under the category of those who have um, had uh, previous conditions of certitude, and so she sort of lays out the the case that you know because of course that that phrase is referring to the former um, enslaved people and so she's she's trying to draw a parallel that they don't have rights to property they are taxed you know all of the ways in which they're um, sort of formed in servitude um, Anthony did never took her case to the Supreme Court because of some legal technicality she wasn't eligible to appeal uh, however. Um, other women who had voted that day did have their their case taken in minor versus Haberstadt is the the case that finally decides it and in that document or in that uh the rhetoric that the that susan b anthony and her her um colleague elizabeth St uh, katie stanton used um you know really was got quite inflamed um 
and you know just raising question of what does it mean to have the capacity to be self-governing what kind of faculties are needed how much education is needed and um you know and, and they made comments that uh, i think are rightly described as racist today so what this argument as you say it doesn't mm -hmm. prevail at the supreme court mm -hmm. so in 1873 women don't have the right to vote in the united states mm -hmm. um the suffrage movement does it take off from there no what happens so it it enters into a, a period that some scholars often refer to it as the doldrums um susan b anthony for example retreats and um, begins to write the history of the suffrage movement um and you know volumes and volumes of writing on on the movement but it's really not until um the late uh, 1890, well, the 1890s that the uh, organizations come together, the women's rights or organizations sort of regroup and uh, uh, make a, a further effort for uh, to pass an, an amendment, which will ultimately be the, uh, the 19th amendment that's passed or ratified in, in 1920. So really almost 40 years go by where there's not a lot of activity and then as you say in the early 20th century yeah the women's suffrage movement really starts to becoming big and i think mm -hmm. lots of our listeners have probably seen you know the old photographs of yeah. women marching and with the flags and mm -hmm. and riding in the cars tooting horns and this sort of thing yeah um, and in fact my my parents are 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 with us today i'm sure listening and my my grandmother uh who was in muskegon michigan actually attended uh, a suffrage rally, I think in 1918, when she mm. was only 17 or 18 years old. Oh my gosh, that is amazing. Do you know if there, well, I mean, I could take it up with your parents at another point. If um, maybe there's pictures available, I think we can, that'd that be would fun be to see. If there yeah. were. <laughs> but what it means is that for years and years yeah. and years, Susan B. Anthony's desire Mm -hmm. to get women the right to vote, which she believed was their, uh, was only fair mm -hmm. and what was their due. She dies in 1906. She doesn't yeah. actually see the passage of the amendment that secures women the right to vote. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really very poignant. Um, she knew it too, right? She knew as soon as that 15th amendment was passed that it was not only, um, and then and then we get the the Supreme Court decision that, not only philosophically had she been defeated, but politically she had been defeated because now there is, as she put it, millions more men that have to be convinced to um, make the, to determine women's fate and allow them to vote. And so she knew that it would be another half century before this could be accomplished. And, um, you know, throughout this time, she's gaining greater and greater national recognition. President Roosevelt used to call a, a I don't know how he actually communicated, but he used to send his birthday wishes to her. You know, she's like, I don't want happy birthday. I want to vote. And um, so she was she did have this national stature um, when she died in um, March of 1906. There uh, were thousands of people that um, attended that funeral as if she were a statesman. And, um, you know, but she wore a pin that had been made for her and it of the American flag, but there were only four stars on that pin when she died representing the four states that allowed women to vote. So it, it really was um, uh, really very sad when, when she passed away without seeing her lifelong work realized.
Right. And it's interesting, right? Because we sometimes forget that just because the federal government doesn't, mm-hmm. it hadn't granted women the right to vote. Some states, you mentioned four states, yeah. I think Wyoming was maybe the first mm-hmm. that allowed women at the state level to vote in federal elections. That's right. Um, um, the The constitution allows that uh, the states could govern their own elections. And so some states saw that that was important and, and allowed for it. So why did Anthony think, as you mentioned, and it's kind mm-hmm. of an important point not to forget, yeah. it was ultimately men who decided to give women the right to vote or to recognize their right to vote with this Yeah, I like that women. formulation better, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that's more consistent with her philosophical argument, right? So I think that that's, and right I slip to up give, too. So, it's but not it, a right it you is, give, it's a right you recognize that right. people have. Yeah, but yeah. Why did she think that she could persuade men to recognize women's right to vote? Well, um, so this this may be a longer answer than you were expecting, but um, I, I think that that's the most compelling argument, um, as I mentioned, generally for Americans, right? It establishes the right or uh, the protection of that right based on our philosophical principles and the, our first principles of this nation. And it's entirely consistent I think, and had the best chance of persuading um, men to vote. Um, and so I, I think rhetorically, it was really very important for her to do that. It was also, you know, maybe practically it was part of a, you know, this legal uh, case that she was she was in. We do see, um, though, throughout Anthony's lifetime and, and certainly throughout the course of feminism that uh, feminists have had the recourse to other arguments for women's right to vote. And I, um, that are, are, are somewhat different and maybe at odds with those, those, um, those principles of individual rights and freedom that we get from the declaration. And so I thought maybe I, I could mention too, um, there are strains of feminism that want to emphasize women as part of a class or category that um and rather than as individuals and so anthony often availed herself of these arguments um as i mentioned uh she first came into public life as part of the temperance movement and at the time it was very unusual for women to speak to an audience of both men and women but there were exceptions, um, temperance, abolitionism, those moral questions, um, women were admitted to a public audience to speak because they had a, um, the belief was that women had a moral authority as women and therefore could speak. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of reminded that that today, that that is, continues to be a thread or an argument in our our discourse, our political discourse. I um, watched President Zelensky's speech to Congress this morning and my own representative, Elise Stefanik, who is part of the Republican membership, spoke afterwards to the press. And um, she began noting that she spoke as a new mother and um, she went on to condemn the bombing of the maternity hospital. And she sort of fiercely claimed that uh, Putin was a war criminal and a thug and would be held accountable. And this was, I think, in a contrast to 
um, the other men who were speaking who were perhaps more measured, more diplomatic. And I think there were probably women across America going, yeah, that's right, sister, you know that's right. Because women have a certain sensibility that they share as a class or a group. Um, the second way I think that um, line of argument that Anthony doesn't choose to take here is uh, still recognizing that women are a, a class or a category is one that um, maybe is more pronounced in contemporary feminism in which um, she makes the case that women have experienced harm or victimization because men have used their power to advance their own interest at the expense of, of women. And so that, um, you know, she used those arguments quite a bit when advancing her temperance agenda that, um, you know, men, men certainly couldn't protect women if they were drunk. Right, right. Yeah, of course. So that, well, that's interesting to me because then with the passage of the amendment, mm -hmm. uh, securing women the right to vote, um, in some ways you don't really have a feminine, at least we don't think of having a feminist movement. Like maybe if that's the early, early American feminist mm -hmm. movement, finally it succeeds. Women get the right to vote. But I don't think of the feminist movement because this webinar is talking about sort of Liz, uh, uh, Susan B. Anthony and contemporary feminism. Right. I don't think of the contemporary feminist movement then as starting until decades later. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's been some good research on in the uh, wake of this, the centennial of the 19th Amendment on women's voting patterns. And we do find that uh, in the years following the ratification of the 19th Amendment that women maybe don't avail themselves the, the, to the right of to vote as they might have been expected to, or that they don't vote um, as a class or a category in the way that feminists, including Anthony, had, had maybe predicted that they would. And so it really isn't until the early 1960s, we generally look to uh, the publication of Betty Friedan's um, feminine mystique as the sort of first moment of uh, this, what we refer to as the second wave of feminism in the United States that lasts in the 1960s and 70s. So, so tell us about some of the print, the arguments that the 1960s feminists and some mm -hmm. of our listeners will be familiar and have lived, obviously lived through that time. Yeah. Um, but how are those, what are their arguments? Um, and you mentioned Betty Friedan as one mm -hmm. example, there are many. Um, are the, are, what arguments are they making about women's role in society? And are they arguments that are like Susan B. Anthony's or not like her? Did they think of her as an inspiration or did they kind of forget about her or turn their mm -hmm. backs on her? What was that relationship? Well, no, I don't think that they tur turned um, their backs on her. She had really uh, become a, a sort of, um, you know, guiding figure, right? One we turned to and with a kind of mythology by the end of her lifetime, the younger women were referring to her as Aunt Susan. The 19th Amendment was um, named the Susan B. Anthony Amendment. So she, she sort of established herself in, um, in the sort of pantheon of, of, of um, importance of feminism. Uh, I would say that Betty Friedan, for example, and other women 
Sometimes we refer to them as liberal feminists because they do adopt the principles of liberalism um, that are, are entirely consistent with the um, principles that we've talked about with uh, Susan B. Anthony. And uh, they seek to expand the rights um, to women uh, and the protections of government to women and use the legislative process to do that. Uh, there are um, another, there is another strain of feminism that emerges in the 1960s, generally by a younger women at the time that wants to diagnose the kind of cultural, social, and um, political ways and forces that are at work on women's lives. And so that they um, don't see that the, the regular political process can resolve the, some of the, the ways in which women have been discriminated against. And so I, I think feminism always has these two threads in it, a kind of liberal thread that we get from Susan B. Anthony that has this attention to equality, freedom, personal sovereignty. I mean, I think that's at the heart of any feminist agenda, but then there are more radical strains and, you know, Susan B. Anthony would have been familiar with them and articulated them that will also uh, sort of critique the, the current system as having these, these forces that are wor working on women that are, are to their detriment. And so as we look at various moments throughout um, the American experiment, um, we can see that these are these different threads are more or less pronounced. And I should add that women don't speak, you know, with the same voice. Um, while, you know, individual women will be persuaded by one argument more or less than the other. Right. Because I'm, I'm thinking, uh, you know, my mind, and maybe it's just wrong to sort mm -hmm. of put a label or a category on someone like Susan B. Anthony, but is she a conservative or is she a radical? Yeah, I mean, it, it's that's a good question. And, um, you know, I'm sure she was accused of very radical tendencies. The um, all manner of nasty things had been said about her because of the way in which she, um, you know, kind of violated the, the the traditional notions of what it means to be a woman. Um, but like you said, there's a very conservative element to her. She is adhering to the principles of our nation and seeking to um, to be part of self-government. And so she's, she doesn't want to tear down the Constitution in the way perhaps the Garrisonian abolitionists had denied the, the Constitution. So um, it's it's ambiguous. So she really wants to kind of conserve the principles of our founding mm -hmm. and extend them to women mm -hmm. and, and, and in the way that they're extended to men. Yeah. Did you see any difference? And I know because uh, I'm thinking about contemporary feminism mm -hmm. and there's a big debate uh, even today, like the Me Too movement. Right. Um, there's a big debate among contemporary feminists about whether women should be treated the same as men Mm -hmm. or whether they should be treated differently. What's the fair way to treat women in society? What was Susan B. Anthony's position on that? Um, well, I, I, I think in the, um, largely her position was that they should be treated the same and, or at least equal. I mean, in that, I, that's the big challenge, right? How do we treat human beings that are 
different equally. And in the case of women and men, you know, they are biologically different. Women have the capacity to bear children that has profound consequences on their own lives, the lives of their families, communities, and their nation. And so um, we want to sort of respect differences among human beings, but we also want to be able to treat them equally. And I, so I think where you see those debates, um, Jeff, I think they're usually, you know, um, motivated by the challenge of doing that. So are there constraints? You mentioned some strains of contemporary feminism mm -hmm. today that you think in some ways may break from Susan B. Anthony's uh, sort of um, founding principles argument. What are some of the arguments that you're seeing out there that you think would be kind of that kind of radical break from her? Mm -hmm. Well, so I, 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 do, um, I do think the emphasis that we maybe even culturally place on uh, the condition of women today has moved away from understanding them simply as rights-bearing individuals who have agency and can determine the, the course of their lives if they're simply left alone from the government. And so I think contemporary feminism really begin, even though I, I count Betty Friedan as a liberal feminist, she was the one that pointed out that all these images that women are getting in the, the magazines, their magazines is being harmful to them. So I do think we've shifted away and, and today we think more about the ways in which the cultural, um, economic and political forces are um, preventing women from you know, exercising their, their rights and their freedom. Um, but, you know, fundamental is, is still the notion of, um, I think, consent. And, and so you had mentioned the Me Too movement. And ultimately, I think that that is at the heart of it, obviously, that women do not want to have uninvited sexual attention or certainly not harassment. And they want to give their consent to their sexual um, behavior. Um, but there are a, a number of forces as um, the Me Too movement has demonstrated that are preventing that. And it's not simply the law, right? So one of the things that um, feminists, contemporary feminists argue, mm -hmm. have argued a lot about and disputed among themselves is um, marriage. Mm -hmm. And whether or not if you're a feminist, you should be in favor of marriage or opposed to marriage. Mm -hmm. um, did Susan B. Anthony talk anything about marriage and the role of women in marriage and the family? And how are her views maybe different, mm -hmm. if they are different from contemporary feminists on that. Yeah, so Susan B. Anthony herself was not married, um, but she uh, was not opposed to marriage. I mean, I, ironically enough, and I'll let everybody infer from this what um, they will, Susan B. Anthony never married. However, her friend, um, her best friend for 50 years, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was married. She had seven children. Seven, I think that's right. And um, Susan was often on hand to help with the care of those children. So she was very supportive of, of her friend. Um, Mr. Stanton wasn't around much, so it was important that Susan was there. And in fact, when one of her, I think it was her last child was born, um, Elizabeth Katie Stanton like sort of joked that she looks just like Susan, you know, because she had been such an important part of that family. Um, and she she didn't write in uh, you know with she didn't write as a um, 
in opposition to the family as an institution in the way maybe some feminists of the 1960s and 70s did, and even even maybe today. Um, but she, but Elizabeth Cady Stanton did, <laughs> and that's the part you know we all must draw our own conclusions. Um, she she had a, actually a more radical position and. Um, you know, was more critical of the family of religion and the things that held the the family in place than and then Susan B. Anthony was. So Susan B. Anthony was not opposed to what we call traditional marriage, traditional no. family. Um, contemporary feminism. You, you mentioned that. Are there? Is your sense today, and maybe this is an unfair mm-hmm. question because there isn't contemporary feminism. Yeah. There's a lot of different thinkers and arguments. But is your sense that contemporary feminism has kind of made peace? with the traditional family i know there it was a it was a radical sort of strains of it attacked the traditional family as you said mm-hmm. in the 60s and 70s is your sense that it's made peace with that or not my sense is that it has so um one of the uh, things that happens in 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 our lifetimes um w- was that Betty Friedan had an occasion to rethink and others rethink their their initial writings on uh, marriage. So one of the things that Friedan kind of got herself into trouble with was to refer to the suburban home as a comfortable concentration camp. And uh, this, that's a very strong phrase. Yeah, that's a, a it was pretty damning. And she, I think, rightly got in trouble for it. Um, she had much you know, uh, less incendiary um, critiques of of the family and the ways in which the family prevented women from moving into the public sphere and, and acting independently of the family. But she did acknowledge in, in her autobiography when she went back to rethink um, those early years of the second wave of feminism to say that the that the feminists got the family wrong that that was their weak spot and that perhaps it had put off the next generation of, of women. So um, when I teach um, classes on women's rights or feminist political thought, I mentioned to them that I was born in 1969, really at the height of the women's movement. And, um, you know, so that year, the women's international terrorist conspiracy from hell we can refer to it as witch jeff you know storm madison square garden and with signs that says always the bride never a person here comes the slave off to her grave so you know marriage is under assault in the late 1960s and then by the time that i graduated college in 1992 time magazine had published a piece on you know this this generation of women who inherited the all the rewards of second wave feminism and are the most you know empowered generation of women to date and um while 94% of people um of women polled there at, at that uh, said that feminism feminism had made life better only 33% of women said that they would call themselves feminists. And so I think this inability to reconcile our personal lives with our public aspirations was part of that. That's really interesting. And we've got some questions coming in now. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted sure. to, one of them is 
um, from a listener who wants to know whether Susan B. Anthony had a strong opinion on the concept of Republican motherhood. Mm-hmm. The idea that women, from, especially from the American Revolutionary period, were responsible yeah. for teaching American values to children. Yeah, so that it's it's a good question, and it might be a little disappointing. So she doesn't, you know, sort of um, rise to the level of Republican motherhood that, or imparting a notion of Republican motherhood that Abigail Adams does, for example, but. Um, we mentioned that this speech was in 1873, so they're, you know, already they're starting to think about the centennial of the Declaration of Independence. And um, I, th- I think it was something, that question doesn't really get as much attention in her writings as, let's say, the, you know, the public element of women's lives, in part, I think, because of you know, that's where the the attention has shifted. Um, but I, I don't think, she, you know, as, as we have, we've talked about, she leveled a critique against Republican motherhood. Um, she she, also, she, so she thought women did have an important role mm-hmm. in raising children, especially children to be good American citizens. Sure. And, and, and that was both true of men and women or female and male children. I think when we think about Republican motherhood, we think about um, in, in large part, maybe because of Abigail Adams um, and her raising John Quincy Adams and others, that you know, it's how are we going to get these men to take their roles as statesmen, as defenders of the republic? Whereas coming from a Quaker background, she was expected that uh, the female and male children would be educated, and that in itself would lead to the necessary traits of a of citizenship. So um, when you look at uh, uh, Susan B. Anthony now in the light of, of the second wave feminism that you've talked mm-hmm. about, and obviously the changes that we've seen in American society and mm-hmm. government, um, what 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 strikes you about her or her legacy? Mm-hmm. What, what really stands out to you? Well, I, I would um, I, I will. Uh, say that I've been thinking about that quite a bit, and in particular with in context of the Me Too movement, which I, I think has probably been the most recent uh, widespread reconsideration of, of feminist principles and activism. Um, and I think what has is so compelling about Susan B. Anthony and which sticks with us is this notion of consent. And so obviously Susan B. Anthony is thinking about that in the context of a political organization and when human beings enter into political life. But, um, you know, since you invoked Aristotle, we might as well just uh, keep our keep him in mind that he understood that a, a political regime was not merely the organization of its formal institutions, but that had um, you know, it permeated through uh, social life as well. And so that question of consent continues to permeate our relationships among individuals on the personal level. And so I think as, you know, being on college campuses and certainly in um, in the wake of the Me Too movement, the most compelling legacy that she gives us is a notion about consent and what it means uh, for human beings to interact with one another. 
Yeah. And, and I'm struck by the, the idea that kind of that propelled my grandmother into mm-hmm. the streets and marching this idea that women have the right and ought to be and are full citizens who ought to be involved in governing themselves. Right, right. And that that is participating in the public institutions, but then also in their own daily lives. Uh, Natalie Taylor, thank you so much mm-hmm. for taking the time to be with us today. What a fascinating uh, conversation about a, a person we've heard about, of course. I think she's mm-hmm. on the $1 coin. Yep. <laughs> uh, As a result of the second wave of feminism, too. So. There you go, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet we don't always know very much about this really mm-hmm. compelling uh, an important American. So thank yeah. you for taking the time to be with us. Oh, I'm, I'm, today. I'm so grateful that you always indulge me. So thank you very much, <laughs> everybody, for, for coming today and and uh, listening in. It's It's been a lot of fun. And I would just let everybody know who's listening. You'll all be sent a link to a recording of this webinar. I want to mm-hmm. just encourage you to share that widely with your friends, mm-hmm. colleagues, children, grandchildren, uh, anyone who needs to know more about this really fascinating American and her life and legacy. Mm -hmm. Uh, For more information about Ashbrook, please check us out on our website, ashbrook.org. For teachers uh, who might be joining us today, uh, teachingamericanhistory.org or tah.org, a terrific site where you can find the speech uh, Mm -hmm. that Professor Taylor was referring to. And also check out our podcast, The American Idea. Uh, Natalie and I had a wonderful Mm -hmm. conversation there. Uh, about Susan B. Anthony and, and her le- life and legacy. So check us out there. You can find it on any of the streaming services for podcasts. Our next event, we're going to be uh, honoring the end of the Civil War, uh, continuing our American Idea webinar series in April with Heroes of the Civil War. You won't want to miss that. It's going to be a great conversation about some really important Americans and the, the wonderful effect that they had through that very challenging time. We really believe at Ashbrook that you can learn lessons of history, and that you can renew your own understanding of what it means to be an American by having these kind of conversations. So thank you today for joining us for that conversation. Uh, We always think that that renewal brings a new sense of hope uh, in America and in this experiment in self-government. So on behalf of Ashbrook, stay healthy, stay hopeful, and stay connected with Ashbrook. Thanks for joining us.
that man will ever make. He dies. Booth promised to kill Lincoln when Lincoln promised to extend the right to vote to former American slaves. And in doing that, not just in freeing the slaves, but in granting them the rights of citizenship, right? Lincoln is, is, a, is a martyr on the altar of liberty. Um, one question here about um, Frederick Douglass, obviously had an influence on him. Just to both of you, just very briefly, would you think, would you call Frederick Douglass uh, a hero of the Civil War? Oh, absolutely. I think he's a hero of the Civil War. Yeah, after after his after Lincoln delivers the second inaugural address, right? He goes he goes out into the crowd and he he sees Frederick Douglass and he walks up to Douglass and says, "Right, there's my good friend Fred Douglass." And he right you know claps him on the shoulder, and he said, "You know, Mr. Douglass, what did you think of my little speech?" And Douglass's reaction is, he says, "Mr. President, it was a sacred effort. It was a sacred effort." I think that's right. Uh, you know, and, and Grant, there's always this question, would Reconstruction have ended differently? What would have happened had Lincoln survived? And I think we get an idea of that because Grant, you, you, you asked the question, what did, what did Lincoln think of Grant? When Lincoln died, Grant, when the funeral occurred in the East Room of the White House, um, Grant sobbed like a little baby uh, at the foot of the casket. I think the case can be made that that Link or that Grant, to the best of his ability, carried out what he understood to be Lincoln's wishes for reunification. Um, and uh, you know, Grant is the one who backs the passage of the Fifteenth Amendment, uh, making sure that 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 uh, blacks had had voting rights. He signs into law the the uh, uh, the act that establishes the Department of Justice in eighteen seventy. Um, uh, in order to combat the Ku Klux Klan, which had uh, risen in the South and um, uh, was intimidating uh, black voters. And Grant crushed the Klan, not the Klan as we know it today, but the, the, this, the, these former Confederates uh, that were operating in the South, he crushed them and made sure that the rights of citizenship to African-Americans uh, were realized by them after the war. This is what we had fought for. Uh, the the really the election of 1870-72. Um, th those were the freest, fairest elections in American history, up until the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. Because um, of course, uh, Reconstruction ends after after Grant's term. Um, but this whole time, you know, in a way, Douglas had been a uh, uh, a sounding board and a conscience, I think. Not that Lincoln needed much help with conscience, but 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 also, uh, but 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 a second conscience for conscience for Lincoln to advise him on things, and he was for Grant as well. Uh, I think they both um, tried to realize what Lincoln was talking about in that last address uh, that that he gave on the anniversary of, of today, and also in his second inaugural address. Mm, fascinating. Um, you know, one of the things we always talk about at Ashbrook is the importance of studying history through primary documents. Um, so things like Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, if we want to understand the meaning of the Civil War, things like some of Grant's speeches to his troops and as president, right? We say, don't read the textbook, um, read the primary documents themselves, dig into those and really have a conversation like we've been having, have a conversation with the past 
and try and understand those principles for for yourself. Um, but there are folks out there have have asked, um, what about your all recommendations for them who want to go on and think a little bit more about the Civil War, about Lincoln, Grant, Chamberlain? What are J Jason? You've mentioned the Gettysburg movie, but what are your favorite movies or books uh, about the Civil War? or speeches that you think, just very quickly, that you think folks should read? Jason, Pat? Yeah, the, the, the movies, Gettysburg, uh, Gods and Generals, especially the movie Glory. I would highly recommend the movie Glory and the new Steven Spielberg movie. I guess now it's not so new, but the new, the new Steven Spielberg movie, Lincoln. Uh, excellent films. As far as books go, uh, again, Michael Scherer's The Killer Angels about the Battle of Gettysburg. Ron Chernow has a a great 1000 page beast of a biography on on grant came out in the past few years that is quite excellent um i'd also recommend um you know a couple of volumes from the ashbrook core documents collection um we're currently working on a volume on the civil war uh dr dan monroe is is working on uh, on that volume and we have previously put out a a, a volume on the causes uh, of the civil war all original primary documents uh, with introductions and, and study questions uh, going along with all of uh, all of those documents. I, I would recommend one other original source, but I have the feeling Maloney is going to take that. Uh, it's the best presidential memoirs in existence. Pat, what are those? Grant's memoir, um, uh, without a doubt. Um, uh, you must read that if you want to understand the man um, and, and appreciate uh, his greatness. Uh, it is amazing how... Uh, well the prose holds up um you know it, it is clear writing that's one thing that everyone uh remarked about grant is you know when you would read his orders he wrote so clearly that and there was never any doubt that what he needed you to do uh and and that carried through into his uh in his memoirs um and the story behind the memoir and how it is written is why it was written is fantastic uh, mark twain called it the uh, the greatest memoir uh, uh, since Caesar's commentaries. Um, you know, now uh, Twain had some reason uh, to sing its praises. He was responsible for its publication. Um, Grant and his son had gone into business with the Bernie Madoff of their day, uh, a man named Ferdinand Ward, who defrauded them and uh, provoked an economic panic in the country. Uh, Grant and his family lost everything. And as they're going through this terrible financial setback, um, he discovers that he has terminal uh, oral and throat cancer. And he had resisted every opportunity. Uh, his friend Twain had come to him and said, write your memoirs, I'll publish them for you. And he thought that he would be, uh, he, he didn't want to seem like he was, he was uh, benefiting off of his, his service to the country. But when he lost everything, um, he needed a nest egg uh, to keep his, his family out of the poorhouse. So uh, he, in a race against time, he writes his memoir, uh, and it holds up incredibly well. Maybe at the end it gets a little bit dicey because two or three days after he finishes the manuscript, he dies, finally. And uh, uh, Twain, Twain actually sold the book on subscription before it was even finished. Uh, and as a result, um, the, uh, Julia Grant got 400 thousand dollars which is i think about the equivalent of 16 million today uh and and kept uh, this was grant's uh, final battle his last victory and it was to to save his family uh and and record his experience of the war 
but I think there's also the effect in there of uh, his campaign in 1868 for president. The slogan was "Let us have peace," and I think he he spent the entirety of his career thereafter trying to, in Lincoln's words, bind up the nation's wounds. And he writes very movingly of of his southern uh, uh, his southern opponents uh, and said, "Look, they fought for the worst cause that they ever." you know, man ever took up arms for, but they fought bravely and honorably. Um, and, and that is what we should celebrate, uh, their bravery, not necessarily the cause for which they, they fought. Um, and I think that it's just a wonderful, wonderful book. And there is a lot that I think can be instructive to us today when we wrestle with these questions about uh, what caused the Civil War and how do we honor those that, that, that fought uh, on the wrong side. Thank you. That's wonderful to, to hear. And one of our listeners recommends Passing of the Armies by Chamberlain, which they say is, was published after his death. So great things to read from all of these amazing Americans. Thank you both for joining us so much. This has been terrific. Lots. Of, I'm sorry we didn't get to all of everyone's questions. We had so many, but what a great topic. Very insightful. Thank you very much for joining us today. I want to thank all of the listeners, you all for joining us. Uh, you'll be sent a link to a recording of this webinar. So if you want to hear it again and listen again, so many great details and stories, but also please send it to your friends, your family, your colleagues, anybody who you know, you know who might be interested in this. And for more information on the Ashbrook Center, you can visit our website at ashbrook.org. For those of you who are students or especially teachers joining us, you can look us up at teachingamericanhistory.org or tah.org. Great um, set of documents and wonderful um, help in the classroom for teachers there. And don't forget our podcast called The American Idea, which you can find at ashbrook.org or on any podcast streaming service where we have these kind of conversations about the important principles and events and people who have shaped America and made it what it is today. So uh, we have uh, more webinars coming up on May 9th. We're gonna be celebrating VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, and what we can learn from our victory over Nazi Germany. And on June 13th, we'll be talking about Ronald Reagan and the fight for freedom. So please join us to those, on those events. We really believe here at Ashbrook that by studying heroes like these three and the understanding the principles that, for which they fought, we can gain insight for today and we can renew our own understanding of the principles that make us who we are as Americans. And we really believe that that kind of renewal of our understanding leads to hope and ultimately to an understanding, a more deep and hopeful understanding of who we are and what we are as a country. And as always, thank you for joining us. Stay healthy, stay hopeful, and stay connected with Ashbrook. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. We're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review and like, follow, or subscribe on your platform of choice. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Thanks again for joining us.